You may be seated. I invite you this morning to turn in your pew Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. This is on page 884 of the pew Bibles in your chairs. We're in a, a season of Advent, and while we might not necessarily see Daniel 7 as an Advent text, I, I believe wholeheartedly that in God's good providence that uh, we've landed at a good time in the book of Daniel because we really can see um, the theme of Advent quite prevalently, to be honest, in this text, and um, a text, um, albeit with a lot of bizarre uh, imagery, things that we might find perplexing, but I pray that God's Spirit working in and through us this morning that we'll learn together um, to become biblically literate, to strive to understand God's Word as best as we can, uh, even in this text here, which is a very encouraging one for uh, the saints on earth. This is Daniel chapter 7. We'll read the entirety of the text. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, with, came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall we go to him in prayer? Lord God, help us turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak. For you speak peace. To your people, but Lord, you speak peace through Christ to your people, our Lord. In his name, amen. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed, and he wrote down this dream and the sum of the matter. Thus, we are introduced to the second half of the book of Daniel. Up until and through chapter 6, the book of Daniel has really been a message for uh, the kingdoms of the day. We saw plenty of dreams that were granted to Nebuchadnezzar himself, and Daniel was the one who was brought in to give an interpretation of these dreams. We're now entering into a time of the book of Daniel that is heavy in what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic comes from a word that means a disclosure of truth, instruction of things concerning divine things that were beforehand unknown. Daniel is now going to have dreams and have them interpreted about things that were beforehand unknown, an an unveiling of transcendent truths concerning the reality around us. We think of uh, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse as it's called. The entire book is one great revealing of transcendent and spiritual realities around us. What we're about to see now from chapter 7, and Lord willing if we continue in this series, all the way through chapter 12, are the things concerning the remainder of history, 
from the time of Daniel all the way to the end. And um, these things are wrapped in strange imagery that really paint a picture of reality, of truth, and of the things concerning God's people and what they are to expect as they live this life on the side of glory. Now, I want to encourage all of us this morning as we uh, begin to engage just a little bit more in what it means to read apocalyptic literature is to be very careful when reading this kind of stuff. We can, um, uh, unfortunately, many, um, if I may put a interesting point to it. Many silly interpretations have come out of reading apocalyptic literature, and uh, I would encourage us all, as we learn these things together, I alongside you, to learn this and, and read the words of Daniel, and if we choose to read the book of Revelation someday as well, to read the imagery of Daniel literarily and not literally that is, let's read the book of Daniel on its own terms in terms of what apocalyptic literature is and not read the book as if it's describing a one-on-one -on -one correlation of things that we're going to see in the future. We're not going to see four literal animals coming up out of the ocean someday, for example. Let's keep that in mind as we read the book of Daniel together in chapters 7 through 12. Another thing to point out um, before we um, really dive into this chapter as well is you'll notice that there's been a chronological shift. Look at verse 1 very carefully. Who's the king that's mentioned there? It's Belshazzar. Oh, I thought Belshazzar was dead. Well, yes, he is in chapter 5. But what we're doing now is we're, we're going back to the reign of Belshazzar and um, seeing what is going to take place, this is the importance of this interpretation that's given to Daniel concerns Babylon as well. Remember where we were, even with Daniel in the lion's den, the kingdom of Persia had already taken over Babylon. But now Daniel is having these dreams when Babylon is still a kingdom and Belshazzar is still reigning. The author of Daniel, Daniel himself probably, wants the readers to be transported back to this kingdom so they can get a divine perspective on what is to come from then on and how history will play out as these kingdoms come and go and as they rise and fall. And lastly, we definitely get a big change in perspective in these remaining passages. Daniel is now the one receiving dreams, and Daniel is now the one who is in need of an interpretation of these dreams concerning God's people in the midst of oppressive circumstances. And oppressive they are. Israel is still in exile, after all. But God is in control. You see, we tend to um, cower in our weaknesses when all we see around us from an earthly perspective, if we, just, if we kept it there from an earthly perspective, uh, things would, would come across as oppressive and overwhelming to God's people. This is why we need a divine and heavenly perspective on what is actually going on around us, even today. What is going on outside these four walls and roof is a spiritual dynamic at work between the powers of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that at play here in chapter 7. This message 
that Daniel receives, particularly in chapter 7, is that despite the presence of oppressive kingdoms, we participate in an even greater heavenly kingdom. And it's not of this world. Now, we might be wondering what this has to do with Advent. Like I said, I didn't plan on Daniel 7 to be an Advent uh, uh, message. I've been in the, the series of Daniel for some time now, and it just happened that Daniel chapter 7 landed in the season of Advent. Uh, but in God's good providence, there is much here that we can apply to Advent because Daniel chapter 7 tells us of the coming of the Son of Man who is uh, to come from Daniel's perspective. And when we grasp the true meaning of Christ's first coming, of his first advent, we are most assuredly prepared for his second advent as well and the consummation of all things. And as the title of this message says, our cry should be, let earth receive her king, for he is worthy to reign with all authority and to give his saints the kingdom. And to look at this more closely, we're going to consider three points as we move through Daniel chapter 1. You also have a, an outline available to you to jot down notes if you wish. We're going to consider the kingdom of beasts, the kingdom of the Son of Man, and an interesting addendum in this chapter. We're going to see kind of a divine illustration of what this looks like, divine uh, kingdom application to these things. First of all, we're going to look at the kingdom of beasts. Daniel 7 begins with these terrifying images of ungodly things. Uh, but where do they come from? Look carefully with me at verses 2 through 3. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So we can think of the four corners of the earth, right, so to speak, and the four winds thereof driving these beasts out of the sea. Um, they come from all over the place, is really what that's saying, from a place of, of chaos and rebellion uh, against God as anti-kingdom powers, if you um, take a gander at the word sea in the Old Testament, you'll see that it's typically associated with a place of chaos where evil things reside that are in opposition to God. God, however, is still in control of the elements of nature, suggesting that God himself is stirring up the sea. God himself and his, his hand controlling the very things that actively rise up in opposition to him. We can see in Psalm 89, verse 9, it says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The rise of these beasts is not chance. It is not happenstance. It is by the ordaining hand of the Lord that they come to be. That already, right there, that very um, uh, statement there should be a real comfort to God's people that despite the presence of oppressive powers and kingdoms in this world, they're not there by happenstance. They're not even there by their decisions, so to speak. God is behind all of the things of history, as mysterious as it may be to us for his purposes. Well, what of these beasts? Uh, you'll recall uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he was an unregenerate man at the time, he dreamt, remember, in chapter 2, of a mighty image of the kingdoms as a colossal and brilliant statue. Chapter 7 here now, on the other hand, describes the divine perspective 
and internal reality of these kingdoms, which accounts for the imagery of unearthly, havoc-wrecking, ugly creatures. This isn't something brilliant and beautiful now. One uh, Old Testament scholar writes, The beasts, with the exception of the second, are like none to be found in God's creation. That is the point. They are symbols of forces ranged against God and his creation order. These beasts are bizarre. They are mutants, perversions of what God intended by his creation. And as such, they evoke not only horror in the original reader, but also revulsion. Now, much like the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue in chapter 2, these four beasts more than likely correspond to the four elements that comprised that statue. If you were to go through chapter 2 again, you'll see that there was the um, uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron mixed with clay that comprised the statue. And here we have four beasts, a lion with eagle's wings, a bear with ribs in its mouth, a leopard with four wings and four heads, uh, and this ghastly creature with iron teeth destroying everything in its path. Much ink has been spilled on the identification of these kingdoms. The more traditional view that is held depicts the head of gold and the lion with eagle's wings as Babylon. The chest and arms of silver and the bear with ribs in its mouth would be uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. The statue's middle and thighs of bronze and the four-headed, four-winged leopard would correspond with the Greek Empire. And then the legs of iron and feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And the destructive nature of this creature with a little horn would then correspond with the kingdom of Rome. In full disclosure, um, I do take a different approach to this traditional one. In my, in my very careful studies of Daniel, I found the view compelling uh, that describes the kingdoms as Babylon, Media, Medo-Persia, and Greece with the splintering of Alexander the Great's empires to come. We're going to look at that again in a moment, but I just submit that to you in the meantime. What's important at this juncture is this. In this piece of apocalyptic literature, these beasts, really when it comes down to it, represent kingdoms of all ages. As the statue of chapter 2 was a unified structure, right, of the empires that was destroyed by the rock cut by no human hand, we also see elements of these beasts in chapter 7 manifest themselves in the composite one-entity beast of Revelation, um, which is Rome in that, in that text, but it's Rome and beyond. It's, it's, there's a deeper meaning in that it represents all earthly kingdoms and human geopolitical systems that are raged against God's people and uh, all through church history and their persecution. These are uh, the successive empires in the ancient Near East, as we're told in the interpretation, and beyond, if you will, through the corridors of time. At their root, however, these aren't just kingdoms in their time. At their root is Satan himself. Revelation 13.4 says, And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That sounds a little familiar today. 
This is really a perversion of Exodus 15, verse 11, where we read, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We need to hear that more often today. (laughs) The world needs to hear those words more often. But the world loves the beasts. And this beastly kingdom is not going to last. We're going to see that in our second point this morning when we look at the kingdom of the Son of Man. And as we look at this kingdom of the Son of Man, we see the Ancient of Days reigns in verses 9 through 12. God himself, we're going to see his rule over these beasts and the wonderful redemptive occasion that takes place during this reign. But first, we enter a courtroom where uh, the Ancient of Days is described along with the saints. He sits on his throne, symbolic of, of the rule, the dominion, and the authority that God has. Take note of his description there. Clothing as white as snow, hair of his head like pure wool, fiery flames issuing from the throne's wheels out before him. We think of white uh, as, uh, as purity, uh, white hair, symbolizing perhaps the wisdom of one in their older age. Uh, Fire as judgment. You put all, all these components together and we get, as one writer puts it, a judge who has the wisdom to sort out right from wrong, the purity to persistently choose the right, and the power to enforce his judgments. This is certainly a scene of judgment as we read in verse 10. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The occasion for judgment, look at verse 11, the great words that the horn was speaking, presumably words of opposition against the ancient of days, very boastful words. We'll see in later uh, chapters what that looked like. But as Daniel looked in the vision, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. But this is interesting. Look what happens to the other beasts. They don't follow suit with this one. Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Again, the sovereign hand of God is on display here. Brian Chappell notes, God calls every nation that opposes him into judgment and destroys them, although he may allow his purposes to be fulfilled by them for a time. Even as evil kingdoms exist, continue to exist, their destruction is at the same time certain. God's ultimate victory over evil is on the timeline, and judgment is certain, and righteousness will prevail. Salvation is coming. And in the epoch of redemptive history, where this is so magnificently put on display for us, is in the first advent of Christ, where he suffered in humiliation as he took on human flesh, right away from being a baby. He died at the hands of man for the sins of his people. He rose on the third day and ascended to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand. We get a vision of this in verses 13 through 14, where we read that the Son of Man 
is given dominion. Just like the rock slash mountain that was cut by no human hands uh, destroyed the statue in chapter 2, the kingdom of God is heralded in the first advent of Christ in the vision of chapter 7. Verse 13, we read, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to who? To the ancient of days and was presented before him. Son of man, that might sound familiar to you. It is a moniker that Jesus himself applies to himself, especially throughout the gospel of Mark. And when Daniel says, like a son of man, the first thing that we think of are the exact same qualities of that of a normal human being. Daniel is seeing what looks to be a human, 100%. But this is not just a mere man for him to be one who comes with the clouds of heaven. That language there symbolizes the kind of uh, divine authority to him. For to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. This is the one of whom it is said in Psalm 2 verse 6, when God renders a verdict of judgment upon the nations, he sets his king on Zion, his holy hill. Now, we see that the Son of Man here in this text comes with the clouds of heaven. That language might bring to mind right away the second coming of Jesus, but this is the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days to receive an everlasting kingdom, universal, far superior to any kingdom that has come before it. And when did this happen? At our Lord's ascension. David Helm writes this. This was the moment, Jesus' ascension, in human history, when the kingdoms of this world were defeated, albeit with the shadow of their power existing for a prolonged season. Remember, the beast has been slain but other dominions and authorities are still given for a little season of a time. This was the point in human history when Jesus entered into the heavens, stood before the Ancient of Days, and received a kingdom. Think of Christ's great commission in Matthew 28, right before his ascension and the words that he speaks to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And then in Acts chapter 1, we read of his being lifted up. And what overtakes him? A cloud. Cloud took him out of the disciples' sight. No ordinary cloud, though. This is um, what we call the Shekinah glory of the Lord. The glory cloud of the divine presence of God himself. With this cloud comes the Son of Man before his Father to receive glory and a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away. This is not speaking of a, of a coming to earth of the Christ as if it were the second coming, but of a coming to God in heaven to receive vindication and authority. He receives a new kingdom, a new and everlasting dominion that is being established to take the place of all the failed regimes that have come before in previous empires. And this vindication of Christ's lordship is uh, prophetically foretold by Christ himself 
when he faces his death and is questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest in Matthew 26. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' response is mind-blowing when we read about this. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see who the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This Jewish establishment, all of the high priests and others were anti-son of man, and they were going to reap the consequences of such. All the while, the risen Lord Jesus' authority over all kingdoms is going to be vindicated, even in their lifetime. In 70 AD, Rome destroyed Jerusalem and crushed her inhabitants. Fulfillment of prophecy in Matthew 24. And in this event, Christ Jesus is vindicated as a true prophet, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one in and through whom God is pleased to inaugurate his kingdom. This is what Daniel sees, the vindication and authority of Jesus over all earthly kingdoms and earthly establishments. He sees this son of man given a kingdom where all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. There's another part of Jesus' great commission that I didn't uh, quote that has a direct correlation because of this authority he possesses. Go therefore now and make disciples of all nations. Have we taken up that call to be subservient to the king of kings and lord of lords? How have you this morning responded to this king of Zion? This is no oppressive ruler that devours and breaks in pieces anything that comes before it. Instead, this is one who himself was crushed by an empire and put to death, who was devoured by death for you and for me, So we would not be overcome by the dragon and its beasts, at least spiritually speaking, but shall receive the kingdom. And that is good news to share to the nations. And what better way to see this applied to us, but by divine illustration and prophecy. We've just learned of the kingdom rule and reign of our Lord. What do we do with that now in our day and age? Daniel is going to get a foretaste of that in these words from the angelic interpreter. In verses 15 through 28, we're given a vision of application. What will characterize the life of the church as it is given the kingdom? The interpreter is going to make the contents of this vision known to Daniel. We're told that these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Times will be dark, but there is a light, so to speak, at the end of the tunnel. And if we trust in this light, we'll really and truly see it enveloping the whole tunnel around us, because it is with us. We should encourage each other, one another, with these words, as First Thessalonians says, We see this divine interpretation and illustration 
uh, particularly in the reign and persecution under the Fourth Empire, and uh, which most assuredly corresponds with the Fourth Kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream, legs of iron, feet and toes mixed with iron and clay. Now, I've got to be careful how I do this because this is a sermon, but I trust the Lord will be with me as I do this. I myself am persuaded uh, and find the biblical interpretation compelling that this fourth empire, this crushing entity that Daniel sees is the kingdom and empire of Greece. I'm not going to go into all the details this morning for the sake of time, but bear with me on just these few points. Look at verse 23. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. If Uh, Any students of history will know and recognize that Alexander the Great's army was invincible as it swiftly took over the then-known world, practically all of it. And it was certainly different from all other empires that came um, before it. We think of Babylon, Media, Medo-Persia, these Oriental, uh, Middle Eastern sorts of nations. Uh, Greece introduced um, Hellenization or Western civilization. Um, certainly different from all other rulers from before. And after Alexander died, his empire splintered into different groups and was divided. And we see the, the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay in chapter 2, uh, symbolizing that a likely reference to the strong Seleucid kingdom of Syria and the weak Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt. I only mention those kingdoms to you now because they're going to be very important in Daniel chapter 11, Lord willing, if we get there. Just a little bit of a foretaste of that. This creature in Daniel 7 had 10 horns uh, in 10 independent Greek states that rose up. Three of these three kings, three of those kings were supplanted by our infamous little horn. Um, probably the kings of Cappadocia, Armenia, and Parthia who were defeated by a man named Antiochus the Great, father of the infamous Antiochus Epiphanes, the beginning of the kingdom of the little horn. Again, I mention that man by name because he himself is also going to be very important in chapters 8 and 11 as we move forward. We read in verse 25 that this little horn will speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. They shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, without stealing uh, chapter 8 and 11's thunder, if, Lord willing, we get to those passages in time, just very quickly, this little horn will oppress God's people, the Israelites, particularly in Jerusalem, for a time, times, and half a time. What does that mean? Let me tell you. Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, he ruled from 175 to 164, uh, and besides persecuting the Jews, really embedded within that persecution, what he did was suppress many uh, things of the Jews of the time. He suppressed the observance of their religious festivals and sacred days, particularly the Sabbath, and he prohibited the reading of the Torah. You can actually read all about this in the apocryphal book of the Maccabees, and this is also where the festival of Hanukkah comes from, which is being celebrated shortly. 
This persecution of Israel lasted for just over three years between 168 and 165. That expression that we read of in Scripture, time, times, and half a time, is understood as one year, two years, and a half year. In other words, three and a half years. Those numbers are going to come up again in Daniel, and they also come up a lot in the book of Revelation, symbolic of total time and period of time of oppression and persecution against God's people. What's important to realize in all of this, though, is, like I had mentioned before, what you could call the the trans-temporal nature of these kingdoms, kingdoms that surpass all periods of time. We can think of, we see the succession of these kingdoms on a timeline, so to speak, but picture it almost as if you're looking at a mountain range. These mountains, if you're just looking down the horizon, it looks like one corporate body, one thing. But once you fly over them and you get closer to it, you see ranges of it all over the place. This is what we call prophetic foreshortening. Daniel is seeing actual empires come onto the world stage in his vision, but we mustn't be rigid in our understanding of them and saying, that's only it, and then it's over. No, they have multiple fulfillments going forward. Antiochus Epiphanes is just one of those fulfillments representing this antichrist spirit that hates and persecutes God's people through all the ages. He's one fulfillment of that, leading all the way to the consummation when one final manifestation of antichrist shows up on the world stage, whatever form that may take place. This little horn that we read of, this anti-covenant-keeping God of Israel king, spoke out against the Most High God and was a stench in his nostrils and is destroyed to the end. The messianic kingdom of God is given to his people subsequent to the destruction of this beast. The question that we might have, though, is when exactly and in what form do the people of God receive this dominion? The answer, in the present fulfillment of the kingdom of God, in the first advent of Jesus, and then also the future consummation of the kingdom of God in the second coming of Jesus. The final beast, remember, in this vision, the final beast has been slain. It is done with a shadow of its former selves still present. This is, again, this is that already but not yet dynamic that is at play here. The establishment of the messianic kingdom and the destruction of the pagan empires is not just this one instantaneous event. Um, this kingdom that's destroyed, it's not doesn't end with Greece or Rome or any of them. Up until now, even, kingdoms still come and kingdoms still go. Daniel is alone concerned with the fact that God and his Christ will ultimately emerge victorious over the beast. And like so many of the Old Testament prophets, 
Daniel himself didn't differentiate between the first and the second comings of King Jesus, nor did he perceive the manner or the phases in the way that the Messianic kingdom would emerge in correspondence to Christ's first and second coming. Out of so much of what I have just spoken to right now, um, I, I, I want you to at least make sure that you leave with this It is certain the Messianic kingdom has been established and the saints of God now rule. The Messianic kingdom will also be established and the saints of God will rule. Again, already, but not yet. We don't experience the full consummation of our reign with Jesus in the moment. It's the relationship between fulfillment in the present and consummation in the future. We finally get to the end of our passage, and we read now that Daniel's thoughts greatly alarm him, whereas before he was just alarmed. Now he's greatly alarmed. Perhaps some of you are as well. If you saw a vision like this, I'm sure you would be. To know that the road ahead even post-exile from Babylon, would be fraught with chaos and destruction and messiness for God's people as they live on earth. A very long and grueling road lay ahead, but deliverance has been promised. That promise came to fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus. And it's that, that first advent that we celebrate this season, that this babe in a smelly manger, would live a life of humiliation as he did, undergoing the hardships and oppressiveness of this life, even under a kingdom such as Rome, living that life with us to die, rise, and ascend from where he gives to us the saints of the Most High kingdom reign. And with those lenses of the first advent, We wait for the promise of his second. In the meantime, our assurance is in the present reign of Christ, where we are actually said to be seated with him in the heavenly places. You see, the powers that be, they're going to do their best to grind us to dust. Where is the spirit of Antiochus? Where is the spirit of Antichrist? Look around. It's not that hard to find. But even so, the court will sit in judgment and a verdict will be given. May the cry of our hearts be not only this Christmas season, but all of our lives. Let earth receive her king. Just as Christ comforted his church by saying, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen.